0: Welcome to the Central Baptist Podcast. Today, Pastor Barton explores how the biblical narrative is the story that helps make sense of our stories. After listening, we'd appreciate it if you took a moment to rate and review the podcast. Your response helps others discover the life-giving truth of the gospel. Now, here's today's message.
1: The scripture reading this morning is taken from Genesis chapter 3. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
0: All right, well, this morning we are continuing on, and we are coming very near to the end of our series. We'll end it next week. Uh, But last week and this week, we are asking the question within our series of what's wrong with the world. And we're asking that question because, of course, you must be able to accurately answer the question of what's wrong with the world if you want to figure out, can anything be done about it? you got to know what's wrong in order to figure out what can be done to fix things. So if you, just like a doctor, if you misdiagnose the disease, then you prescribe a wrong remedy. you got to get the diagnosis correct so that you can then get the proper diagnosis and the cure. I think one of the greatest examples of this is the 20th century, this last 100 years. You know, at the end of the 1800s, very first decade or so of the 1900s, people were very optimistic about the future. And they diagnosed what was wrong with the world by saying it's the social systems. The social systems are what's wrong. And then the cure was, if we can just provide education, that was the really big one, education and government systems, if we can just do this, Imagine hearing these words. We will eliminate all war from the world. This was the belief. And nowadays you just sit there and think, how could anyone have thought this? But this is what they truly believe. We can rid the world of all war. There will never be war anymore. There will never be poverty. The world is progressing to get better and better. And we will achieve this kind of human utopia. Very optimistic at the beginning of the 20th century. But the cure was not the right cure. It's partly a cure. Education is good. But the diagnosis didn't go deep enough. And of course, two world wars happened and the rest of the 20th century. And it turns out, as we look back now, the 20th century was the most educated century in the history of the world. And it was the bloodiest century in the history of the world. This is why we need to think more deeply about what is truly wrong with the world. Of course we need education. Of course we need good government. But is there something deeper going on? Why have we not been able to figure out these problems and, and to be able to end things like war? So this is why we are going back to the book of Genesis, why we are specifically going back to Genesis chapter 3. Because as we've been saying, the Bible traces all that's wrong with the world to an event that happened in Genesis chapter chapter 3. And the image that I've been using is that of pollution. If you you take a river and it's filled with kind of toxic waste, all kinds of toxins downstream, and you know, the ecosystem is dying and anyone who drinks from the water gets sick or dies. If you want to figure out what's wrong, you got to go upstream and you got to figure out maybe there's a plant up there that uh, toxic waste has been spilling out, seeping through the ground and getting into the river. You need to go upstream, determine what the cause is, and then deal with it there And then you solve the issues downstream. And what Genesis 3 is, is we're going upstream. We're going back to the source. We're going back to what the Bible says is the event that changed everything. And if we can figure out what went went, went wrong here, then maybe we can figure out what the cure is. So in this chapter, we will see that Genesis 3 says that what's wrong with you and me What's wrong with the world is that like Adam and Eve we have believed what I am today going to call the beautiful lie the beautiful lie this lie is so attractive it is so beautiful to us that we become so enchanted by it that we are spellbound by it it's a powerful powerful lie because it comes across as something that is so beautiful, but is a lie that has toxins within it that then pollute our hearts and eventually from our hearts spread out to all the problems that happen in the world. Genesis 3 is claiming really big things here for what's wrong with the world. So today I want to look at this beautiful lie in three parts, all right? So first of all, we're going to talk about the beauty within the lie. Why would this be so attractive? Then, secondly, the toxins within the lie. And then finally, the one who rescues us from the lie. So, first, then, let's begin with this the beauty within the lie. The basic story, I'm sure as you just heard it, as you've maybe read Genesis 3 or heard it before, the basic story here is that the serpent wants to get Adam and Eve to disobey God, to turn their backs on him and eat the forbidden fruit. And so he entices them to do this by telling them a lie. But this lie is so subtle and it is so attractive. So let me just, I'll paraphrase the lie or what it really means and then I'll explain it, okay? So here here is what really the lie is. If you want to reach your full potential, you need to break away from God because his rules and he, by implication, are holding you back. That's the essence of it. If you want to reach your full potential as a human being, you need to break away from God because his rules are holding you back. So what I want to show you here, we're going to break this down now. Like a coin has two sides to it, there's kind of a two sides to this line. We're going to look at both of them. So here's the first side of the coin. The lie on the one hand attracts us because it says that obedience to God and his rules will hold us back from reaching our full potential. They're going to hold us back if we follow God and his ways from reaching our full potential. Here's what we read in Genesis 3 verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So the serpent is coming in here and really trying to say to Eve, Eve, God is holding you back. The only reason God forbids you and then threatens you that you're going to surely die is because God knows something and he doesn't want you to know it. He's holding you back, Eve. He's keeping things from you. And Eve, as one, I'm concerned for you. I want to warn you. I want to say to you, he is restricting you from reaching your full potential and your true happiness. And that's attractive because let's be honest, nobody wants to be oppressed. Nobody wants to be held back. And if this is really what's going on, you can see why this is attractive. You can see the beauty within the lie. This is a terrible thing. Nobody wants to be oppressed at all. So the serpent is getting Eve to feel like God's rules are not in her best interest. That we miss out on something big. We don't know what it is yet. Well, we miss out on something if we obey. That holiness cannot lead to happiness. Those things are contradictory. So on the one hand, the lie attracts us because it says that obedience to God and his rules are holding us back from reaching our true potential. That's the one side of the coin. Here's the other. The lie also attracts us because it says disobedience to God and his rules will liberate us to reach our full potential will liberate us. So this is more the the really beautiful, attractive part to it. If if you break away from God and make up your own rules, then you will find what you're really looking for. Obedience will hold you back. Disobedience will free you. So here uh, is what we see again in verse 5. God knows that when you eat of it, here's the positive, your eyes will be opened. And, wow, here's a big phrase. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. What a powerful, powerful idea. We as creatures can be like God himself. This is so enchanting to Eve's mind, and she is utterly spellbound by it. I mean, really what's going on here, this is the serpent's version of the I have a dream speech from Martin Luther King Jr. This is his own version of that, casting a vision, a dream for Adam and Eve. If they follow it, they'll get it. Really, he's saying to her, Eve, I have a dream that one day you will throw off the chains of this God who is holding you back. Eve, I have a dream that one day you will become all that you are meant to be. Eve, I have a dream that one day people will not be judged by obedience to commands but rather on how passionately they pursue their own freedom and their own self-expression. So, Eve, let freedom ring from the throne room of God to the Garden of Eden. Let freedom ring from generation to generation. And on the day, Eve, when you embrace that freedom and when you experience it all to its fullest, we'll all join hands and sing together in the words of that old song, free at last, free at last. We can say we made a good choice. We're free at last. This is the serpent's I-have-a-dream speech. He's holding you back, Eve, and you need to be free. And when you're free, you'll be like God himself. You, a creature, are being held back, and one day you will be free. So do you see just how attractive this is? What an attractive vision it is. If God is holding us back, if he's keeping things from us that can cause us to experience true happiness, then it makes sense to break away from him and to be our own gods. Because once we believe, as we saw last week, once we believe that God does not really have our best interests at heart, it would make sense to break away from him to find true happiness and true joy. This is why the Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner writes these words, to be as God... And to achieve it by outwitting him is an intoxicating program. And Eve is now drunk with the idea. Her mind is reeling in exhilaration over the possibilities of what it would be like to have her eyes opened and to be like God. It's a thrilling thought. It's an irresistible thought. This is the beauty within the lie. And it's not just for Eve. Now think about our world. This idea, this beauty within the lie is everywhere. Like I said to you last week, this is in the air we breathe. This is absolutely everywhere in the way that we think. There's a Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor, Very wrote a very, very famous book called A Secular Age. In this book, Taylor summarizes our age by saying we live in the age of authenticity. That's what Mark's Our generation is, we are the age of authenticity. Uh, There's an author, a friend of mine as well, acquaintance I should say, uh, named Trevin Wax, and he summarizes I think what Taylor's getting at with this paragraph, captures it so well. The age of authenticity is the idea that life is all about realizing your humanity, finding and living out your own vision of life instead of conforming to society, the previous generation or religious and political authority. Now as you read that you probably just go, "Yep, I mean that's isn't that self-explanatory to you?" And there's much of course that could be said that's good about that. But isn't this not the age we live in? The age we live in says no, if you want to really realize your humanity, you find it not by conforming to society standards, especially not to religious standards, you find your own way. You figure it out on your own and be the true, authentic self. So you can see it just in the spirit of our age. This is the idea that we need to develop our own selves, to be our own gods. We'll never allow a God above us to define for us what is right and wrong or how we are going to live. You can see this beautiful lie as well in how people just view Christianity. So many times I've talked to people and they say, yeah, I'm interested in Christianity, but you know what? While I'm young, I just want to have a lot of fun and enjoy life. And uh, maybe as I get older, maybe I'll come back and kind of consider all of this. But do you not hear underneath all of that? Under it all is the beautiful lie. Because under it all is, if I follow God, I won't find happiness and joy. Following God is restrictive. It's going to ruin my life, so I'm going to kind of live my life for a while. That's the path to joy, and then maybe I'll get serious later on. Underneath it all is this idea that following God will not lead to happiness and joy. You've got to break away and do it on your own. Or you can see the beautiful lie, most obviously, in every single sin that anyone, anywhere, Ever commits. From the most mature Christian in the world to the person who has no care whatsoever. It's under it all. It's through it all. The reason why we ever break God's commands is because we first believe that obedience will hold us back. We'll be denied something, right? And we only ever engage into sin because we believe that actually is the way to freedom and happiness. So that's why I say it's through everything. It's in everything. This this is absolutely everywhere within our own hearts and our own lives. So really, if there was a soundtrack in Eden while this was all going on, and if there's a soundtrack behind all of our lives, it's a soundtrack that has played throughout all the generations since this moment. It's the soundtrack of the human race. It's the soundtrack of that song that sounds so wonderful, that has such a great crescendo and such a great melody. It was playing when Eve went through all of this and Adam. It's playing in the background of our lives, and the music swells to a great crescendo. And Frank Sinatra sings, I did it my way. Isn't that it? The exact same thing, right? I did it my way. It's the age of authenticity, I will not allow anyone to tell me what to do. I will find my own happiness and my own joy. I'll break away from all structures, all gods, and this is the way to find true happiness and true freedom. And if God and his rules really do hold us back from all this, then by all means, we should break away. This is the beauty within the lie. This is why it's so attractive, because God's character has been said to be one that doesn't really care about us so as you consider your own life where would you say you believe in this lie where you see the beauty and the attractiveness of it search your own heart I think you'll find it underneath all of these kind of things so that's the beauty within the lie but now let's turn in the second place to talk about the toxins within the lie You see, what the Bible goes on to say is that the serpent misrepresented God. Misrepresented him. Remember we said last week it's character assassination. Killed his character, made him look like he doesn't have our best interest at heart, so that then we would believe this lie. Made it so attractive because he misrepresented God's character and the consequences of disobedience. In other words, the beauty that we just talked about that is so attractive to us is nothing more than the worm that hides the hook. It's the cheese that covers the trap. The serpent's enchanting dream, the I have a dream, is actually a giant nightmare. Oh yes, the serpent spoke some truth, but it is truth laced with poisonous toxins so that it's actually a lie. You can say true things, but if you say them in a certain way, it can actually be a lie and that's what's going on here. So let's see it with Adam and Eve on the one hand, and then let's see it with ourselves on the other. So here's the first thing to say about this. It's true that their eyes would be open. The serpent was telling the truth about that, but not in the way they thought. Not in the way they thought. As soon as their eyes were opened, after they disobeyed, did it suddenly lead to this great, I have a dream, uninhibited freedom, joy and fullness, greater fullness than they had? Is that what it led to? No. It leads to shame. It leads to hiding. It leads to marital conflict and total breakdown immediately. Another thing to say, it is true that they would be like God in knowing good and evil but not, again, in the way they thought. They know what it is like to be God in the sense, remember we talked about this idiom of knowing good and evil, to be independent. You don't need anyone else's help, especially to make up your rules for right and wrong. Remember we talked about this a few weeks ago? In one sense, they, they, want, they are like God now. They become independent. They've made themselves independent of God. It's a declaration of independence is really what's going on here. And they make this declaration of independence, but then do they find the joy that they're looking for? No. They realize quickly they are truly dependent creatures. None of us are independent. None of us can live without anyone else or anything. We have, don't have life in ourselves. We just need air. That's the first thing we're dependent on. They learn quickly they are not independent creatures who can take care of their own. We become like children like a five year old and they, they think it would be so great to run away from home, get rid of our parents and all their strict rules, and do whatever we want that 's whatever you know five six seven year old thinks and that 's exhilarating there 's a thrill to it and If the kid actually goes out and leaves the house, probably not more than an hour they 're going to last it 's so exhilarating it 's so thrilling. But after about an hour, the child realizes they're not old enough, mature enough to be independent and to live independently. And pretty quickly, the world and all its problems and all the difficulties come crashing down and they realize, like Adam and Eve, they are not independent creatures. Here's the irony here. The horrible irony here is that in a sense, Adam and Eve already were like God. They were made in the image of God. They didn't have to try and become like God. They're already made in his image and now they let a creature that was not made in the image of God tell them this is how you can be like God when they should have said, actually, we're the ones already made in the image of God, not you. We already have this high and exalted position, but we're not gods. We're always dependent creatures. Oh, the irony, the horrible irony that a creature not made in the image of God tells those made in the image of God to disobey God. In order to be like God. Oh, the horrible irony of the whole thing. But now we got to consider a question. The question that Christians often ask, or anyone who reads the Bible often asks, if you're really going to understand the toxin within the lie, here's the question we got to ask Why does God make such a big deal about eating an apple? Why would he make such a big deal about this? Only when we understand the answer to this question can we understand the toxins within the lie and really why this is such a big deal. So a few things to say. First of all, I'm going to wreck a few of you. Genesis 3 never says it's an apple. That's where we're going to start, okay? Some of you are just, what? Look down at your page. What? No, what? It never says it was an apple. Hate to break. Burst your bubble. Uh, It only says it was a fruit. I think I've said this to you before, but just because any good, you know, teacher or preacher sometimes repeats themselves to drive home a point, this is one of the more important things I have taught here before, and I will teach again at this point. It was actually a Brussels sprout. Okay, so... And then, of course, everyone says, that Brussels sprout is a vegetable, not a fruit. And as I've taught you so clearly before, in the garden, the Brussels sprout was a fruit, and it was delicious. And then God cursed it to become the worst of all vegetables. So that's the history behind all that. Look it up. You'll find it. Okay, so it's not an apple. Let's move to the more serious part now. Uh, Genesis 3 does not say it's a magical fruit, as if the juices of it would somehow unlock their brains' knowledge of good and evil. That's also not really what is going on here. Third, whatever the fruit was, the real point is that it was a test. It's not really about the fruit in one sense of the word. It's about God's command not to eat the fruit. So it's not about some magic fruit or something as if God's like, oh, I didn't mean to make that one, and uh, so so avoid that tree. That's not what's going on. It's about the command that God has given. The fruit is the expression of the command. Will you trust me is what God is saying. This is the test. Will you trust that I, as your creator, know what's in your best interest, will take care of you, and that if I am good, whatever I command is good. Will you trust me? That is what is going on here. And when the serpent tempted Eve, she should have said to him, you must truly be an idiot. Look around you, serpent. She should have said, how could I possibly question the goodness of God? This is the God who created me, who gives me life. This is the God who gave me this husband who loves me so well. This is the God who planted this garden, filled it with fruit trees. We have all the food we can eat. There's four rivers that run through this garden. We live in paradise. How could I possibly ever question this God? Not only that, he walks and talks with my husband and I in the cool of the evening. How could you dare to question the goodness of God? That's probably what she should have said. Will Adam and Eve trust God or will they believe the beautiful lie? The lie that really attacks God's character and says God's rules are a bit of a joke. And God himself is overly strict and restrictive And if we follow him, we're going to be held back. We're not going to get to experience the fullness of what it means to be human. So we should really break away from this God and be our own gods and decide for ourselves how we are going to live. See, it's not really about the the fruit or the tree in one sense of the word. It is in the other. It's about the command of God. And will Adam and Eve trust their creator? Well, the tempter's work is done. He never told Eve to eat of the tree directly, but he's made it very easy for her to do so. He's made her suspicious of God's true motives. He's called God's character into questions. He's denied that God would ever actually follow through on this punishment of death. He's made her think that her creator is holding her back and not giving her all the things that would truly make life great. And he's promised that if she will disobey, she will find new horizons that she's never seen before. He said his I have a dream speech and cast a great and powerful vision of the future of freedom and joy and happiness. And then the narrative, the story almost comes into slow motion and we get reflections on every one of Eve's thoughts. Here's what we read. So when the woman saw, that word saw means to give careful consideration to. She is reconsidering God's commands in light of the serpent's words. When she saw the tree was good for food, so it's going to taste good. There's that side to it. It appeals to her senses and that it was a delight to the eyes. It's a beautiful tree. The fruit looks great. And here's the key in that the tree was desired to make one wise. If she could eat from this tree, she would get a wisdom that now she believes God is withholding from her. She could gain something, outwit God, because God's holding back. If she can outwit God, she could gain this wisdom, which God is denying her if she just goes and eats it. So the narrative slows down to hear every thought in Eve's mind, and then the pace of the story accelerates. All of a sudden, in rapid fire statements, the entire event takes place. She saw, she took, she ate, she gave some to her husband, and he ate. And the world collapsed around them. She saw, she took, she ate, she gave some to her husband, and he ate. Apparently, Adam was with her the entire time and he stood passively by as his wife was deceived and his creator was defamed. Both Adam and Eve are guilty, but Adam, interestingly, bears the ultimate responsibility. It's Adam whom God calls to account. For Adam was supposed to act as the head of the human race in this moment. And when the serpent accused God of lying, Adam should have picked up a stone and crushed the serpent's head for speaking such lies about the creator of the universe. But he didn't. Along with his wife, he took the fruit and he ate. So, let's bring all this together now. Here's the summary statement. The Bible says that the root of all our problems on a global level and on a personal level is that we have turned away from our creator. There's many other problems, many other ways you can look at it, but at bottom, the Bible's answer to what's wrong with the world is that we have all turned away from our creator. Or, of course, the biblical word for this is sin, to turn away from your creator Sin is not just the breaking of one of God's rules, though it is that. Every sin is nothing less than the little creature who is dependent on its creator, shaking his or her fist in God's face and saying, I'll do it my way. Every sin, then, is an act of mutiny against the captain of our souls. Every sin is an attempt to de-God God, to take away God's godness and to elevate ourselves to be our own gods, and make up our own rules and our own lives. Every sin is an act of cosmic treason against the creator of the universe. And for this, you can see then, we as human beings are guilty before our holy God, our creator. We've turned our backs on the very one who made us, the very one who's given us life and breath and everything else. And for this, as we will see next week... We're banished from his presence in the garden. That the serpent lied is obvious from our experience. I mean, just look at all the kind of new age spiritual self-help books that say you are a God, this language in our culture, you are a God. Well, if we're gods, we don't rule our own lives very well and we don't rule our world very well. For all of our great grandiose statements about I do it my way, we live in the age of authenticity. We are an age also marked by anxiety, by stress, by frustration, by anger, sadness, and violence. We don't rule our own lives very well, and we certainly don't rule the world very well. The Bible says under all our problems is the idea, the fact, that we have all turned our backs on God. Isaiah says, "All we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We have our own ways, each of us. How we turn away, like even Adam, turn away from God's ways, away from our Creator. And when we do this, the great dream that was promised to us, we discover quickly, it's not a dream at all. It's actually a nightmare. That is the toxin within the lie. The toxin within the lie. So again, reflect on your own life. Where do you see that you have believed and bought into the beautiful lie? Where have you turned away from God in your own way? Whatever your way is. Where do you see that you have said, I'm going to be my own God and figure out life on my own? And as the old saying goes, how's that going for you? If we're all honest, you talk to so many people as life goes along, you start to realize, I can't rule my life very well. I make a mess of my life. And the Bible says, under it all, it's because we have tried to go our own way. That's the biblical answer for this. Well, let's turn the corner into some happy stuff now, shall we? Having talked about the beauty in the lie and the toxins also within the lie, now finally I want to talk about this. This is the good stuff. The one who rescues us from the lie. In Romans chapter 5, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul compares Jesus to Adam. And he says Jesus is the last Adam compared to the first Adam. He is the anti-Adam, if you will. He is the fulfillment of Adam. He is everything that Adam never was and should have been. Here is what I want to show you in this last point. As the last Adam, Jesus came to undo what Adam did and to succeed where Adam failed. Jesus, God sent his son into this world to undo all the damage that Adam did and then to succeed where Adam failed. Although Adam's actions cast us out of God's presence, Jesus comes in order to forgive us of our sins and to reconcile us back to God so that paradise can be regained. So track this now with me. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus goes on the offensive Jesus goes to, to start a confrontation, really, with the serpent himself. We read that in the garden, the serpent came to Eve, but we read of Jesus when he starts his ministry is led by the Holy Spirit out into the desert where he is going to be tempted by the devil. Jesus there is picking up where Adam left off. But Jesus' temptation is not amongst a beautiful lush garden with rivers that run through it. No, it is in the desert. His temptation is not among all the fruit trees where you can eat however much you want and be satisfied. Jesus' temptation is in a desert where there is no food and he is hungry. The serpent tries to get Jesus also, like he did with Adam and Eve, to doubt the very goodness of God. He starts off with, if you are the Son of God... If the father really cares for you, why are you so hungry? Why don't you take these stones and turn them into bread? Maybe your father doesn't really care and you need to take life into your own hands, Jesus. Same strategy. Get him to doubt the goodness of God if you really are the son of God. Why is the father not caring for you in this moment? He tries to get Jesus to take his own destiny into his own hands. Jesus knows he has to go to the cross and the, and the serpent says to him, hey, let's tell you what, just bow down to me right now and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. It's an easier path for you. You don't have to follow what God has said for you. You can have an easier way. Make up your own rules, Jesus. All you gotta do is bow before me. But where Adam failed the test... Jesus passed the test. Where Adam threw off God's authority, Jesus submitted to the Father's authority and refused to bow the knee to the serpent. The first Adam let the serpent speak, the last Adam shut him up. The serpent misquoted God's words. Jesus accurately quoted God's word and shut up the serpent by quoting the scripture itself, exposing the devil's lies. He goes out into the desert, and what Adam could not do, Jesus did. And so we read that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And since the serpent could not get Jesus to sin against God, he planned to have him killed. And so we read that Satan entered into Judas and the whole story that happens there. And the Bible doesn't say what happened in the spiritual world behind the scenes when Jesus was being crucified. I imagine, I could be wrong, but I imagine the serpent and all the evil powers were shouting with joy that they might not have been able to get him in one way, but they got him in another way. They had him killed. But the cross was actually God's great move to utterly defeat The evil powers for it is our sins that keep us in bondage it's our sin that that it keeps us under judgment it's our sin that is the problem but on the cross God takes our sins and he puts them onto his son so that Jesus takes the judgment that we deserve so that we can be forgiven for our sins so God has made a way through his son in order for our sins to be forgiven we can't fix ourselves that's the whole history of the human race we can't do it but Jesus comes to undo what Adam did. Jesus comes to succeed where Adam failed, to restore all that has been lost. And so with our sins fully paid for, anyone can come to Christ, have their sins forgiven, and be restored back to God. That's why Colossians 2 puts it so perfectly. It says these words, he forgave us all our sins having canceled the written code with his regulations that stood uh, that was against us and that stood opposed to us. How did he do it? He took it away, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, that is the evil spiritual powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus came to undo what Adam did. And so that's why in the last few moments before he died, he cried out, it is finished. That was not a cry of defeat as if, I tried everything, it's finished, I can't do this. That's not what that cry is. It's a cry of victory as he realizes the sins of all his people have been taken away. We can be reconciled back to God. He has undone now what Adam did of all this history, all this terrible uh, consequences that have come from it. It's a cry of victory. It is finished, he's saying. It's done. I've done everything necessary in order to undo what the first Adam did. So this is the message of Christianity then, that you and I have sinned against our creator. What's wrong with the world is we've turned our backs upon our creator, and we brought terrible consequences upon ourselves. But the holy God, in his great love and in his great mercy, found a way to make things right, and he does it through his son, Jesus Christ, who comes into this world to undo what Adam did. And for anyone who bows the knee to Jesus and says, would you forgive my sins, that person gets their sins forgiven, freed from judgment, and promised a new world where paradise will be regained. Have you come before God and asked him to forgive you of your sins? To say, I'm sorry, I have turned my back on you and gone my own way. Have you done that? Jesus offers himself again today to bring that salvation to you. And then to bring this all to an incredible final conclusion. The serpent encouraged Eve to take the fruit and to eat it. And of course we read, she took it of the fruit And she ate, and then we read, she gave some to her husband, and he ate. How easy this action was! How difficult was its undoing! For the Son of God would have to face humiliation and death in order to undo it. But now, those words take and eat point us to the salvation that God has won for us through his son, Jesus Christ. For in order that we might continually remember God's great love to us in sending us his son into the world, Jesus said that we are to regularly celebrate a small meal of bread and the fruit of the vine of bread and the fruit of the vine. Jesus took bread and he took a cup filled with the fruit of the vine. He gave thanks to God. Thanksgiving be an expression of, Father, we love you and we trust you with our lives. And then as Eve gave the fruit to Adam to eat, Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you. We then read that he gave it to the disciples And we also read, he said, take it and eat. And they took it and they ate. All this in this simple little meal to remember Jesus' victory. Take and eat undid the world. And take and eat redid the world and undid what Adam did. This is the work of Jesus, the Son of God. This is the mercy and the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ, that Jesus came to undo what Adam did and to succeed where Adam failed. This is what the holy God has done for us, though we turned our backs on him. This great God, the creator of the universe, had mercy upon us as his creation, sent his son into the world in order to die for our sins, and then promises that anyone who comes to him will one day, once again, as we will see next week, be brought back into a paradise, a new home, a new earth, where God will once again dwell with his people forever. Jesus came to undo what Adam did and to succeed where Adam failed. Let's pray. I want to give you a moment right now. Maybe you've never asked God to forgive your sins and come before Christ Let me pray a prayer, and if you would like to pray with me and from your heart, you can do that. Pray something like, Father in heaven, I admit that I have sinned against you. I admit that I have tried to go my own way. Forgive me for not trusting you. Forgive me for disobeying you. Jesus, because of what you did on the cross, please forgive me and reconcile me to God. If you pray that in your heart, the scriptures say that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, calls on Jesus, will be saved. He forgives your sin. He restores you. Let's just take a moment in silent meditation to confess our sins to him, and then we'll take a moment to praise him as well. We thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son. You, the Holy God, who sent your Son into this world. You, the creator of all things, the powerful God, did not turn your back on us when we turned our backs on you, but you sent your Son in order to save us. And as we celebrate this meal now, as we think of what Jesus did on our behalf, we give you praise. We give you glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcast. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Podcast.